Awoga, this is a 12th cast. Listeners, how lovely to meet you. This is just a little live dwarfcast we've put together to discuss Red Dwarf 11, Episode 5, Crisis. Do you dabble in podcasting at all? I'm going to drop that <laughs> voice now. Over the course of the next uh, precious hour and a half of your ever-dwindling life, we'll be discussing midlife, the universe, and everything, as well as bringing you some amazing true facts about the making of this episode, a preview of the forthcoming finale, and several instances of the word cloche. I'm Ian Symes, and I'm delighted to say that for the first time this series, I'm joined by the complete G&T team. Yay. Freshly escaped Yay. from the clutches of Kerry Shale, please welcome John Hall. <coughs> Tanya Jones. Hello. And via the subwoofers on my shiny new suit, Jonathan Capps. Cloche. And Danny Stevenson. Hello. Along with our resident fan club Loney, Joe Sharples. I actually live here. <laughs> if you're listening live, then please do make us feel better about our meaningless existence by showing us some love. The easiest way to get your messages to us is by commenting on the Spreaker page, but if you're feeling nostalgic, you can also leave a comment on the Let's Talk About Crisis on Dave thread at www.ganymede.tv or tweet us at Titan. But first, as it's been quite long enough to wait for John Hoare's first official utterances on the subject of Red Dwarf Eleven, tell us briefly, John, what you've made of the series so far, and then, even more briefly, where Crisis slots in. Well, it's kind of shit, isn't it? John Hoare, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, no, I don't think it's shit. Um, I, I'm struggling with this series, as was probably predictable. Um, and I kind of wish I was finding it a lot funnier... I quite enjoyed Officer Rimmer. That was the first time the series really kind of perked up for me, which is odd considering you <laughs> really <laughs> wasn't as keen. Um, I just think it's a lot of good ideas, but not funny enough, and kind of that involves a lot more discussion that we don't have time for right now. No, but we will so, at some point soon. Yeah. We'll, we'll catch up on the backlog of John opinions. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but for as for Crisis... Uh, I think the Mar scene is the funniest scene so far in the series, and I thought the first kind of ten minutes was a waste of time, and I thought the last ten minutes was not a waste of time, but not that funny. Alright. Uh, Tanya, brief thoughts on Crisis? Uh, second half a lot better than the first, but uh, basically anything with Butler is pretty strong. Joe? Um... I am kind of sticking with my original thoughts from when I saw it recorded, and I think it's fine. It's not the best. I think it's the worst episode of Red Dwarf that exists. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> uh, let's go Capsy next. I think it's <clears throat> some of the strongest performances this series, the best guest by far this series. I'm all kind of let down by 
bit of a floofy plot. Floof? <laughs> 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 Rough around the edges. Floof. Uh, Danny. I, it's, it's my favourite episode of this series, and it's, it's, it's probably going to start entering the top 36, which nothing has so far, oh. which is really weird. Oh, top 36, breach alert. <laughs> <laughs> I thought uh, all the ingredients were wrong, and I really quite enjoy it. <laughs> I, I enjoy the episode, and yet when I think about it, I think, no, that was rubbish. But then when I watch it, I really enjoy it. It's weird. Uh, and so, yeah, our, our, our mission for the next hour and a half is to figure out what exactly is going on in the episode <laughs> and why we've all kind of uh, come to completely contradictory opinions, both within ourselves and each other. So if we, uh, if we get into our talking points, uh, the first talking point is red, red wine with an H. Uh, which it refers, obviously, to the main thrust of the episode, Crichton's midlife crisis and how it uh, how it manifests itself. And this was the thing that beforehand we uh, we were all a bit oh okay you're going to do that with Crichton well be careful <laughs> <laughs> because we've all seen beyond the joke and we've all seen a robberus and yeah however I think this was one of Robert's best episodes for ages. I think Robert did really well, mm. uh, and he was he was so Crichton like, which isn't always the case. He had so many big long speeches, uh, and often in the last couple of series, I think there's been times where you can sort of, whenever Robert's got a big speech to do, you can kind of see the joins either where two different takes have been used, or sometimes they keep in a little bit of his hesitation. But I think this time round, he seemed to nail all his big lines. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I say, it, I mean, it, the spotlight's kind of been on him for the, the or it was on him fully for the first time in the Dave era, I believe. Mm. And he, he kind of, uh, he, he handled it very well, I thought. And actually, yeah, you, you're right about the wrong ingredients, but it works because really there's nothing about Quiet's Midlife Crisis that should be good <laughs> if, if you put it all down on paper but I, I enjoyed I enjoyed the red sports car scene a fair amount I don't like the fact that he's three million years old and in the middle of his life I think that's bollocks yeah, but um, yeah. that's more of a kind of a side detail issue really that's that is weird isn't it that's just it is. odd I think yeah I think that's covered in a separate right, talking okay. point uh, oh, typical I'm sticking rigidly to the format, even yeah. though it's, it's useless. Um, but yeah, I, I I liked the funny walk that accompanied the the uh, the suit. It could have been just a suit, but it was the the slightly quicker than normal walking, but not much quicker than normal walking. <laughs> it felt a bit stage showy. Yeah, I mean, thinking about it, it's just a little bit like you know, making do. <laughs> with you know, kind of letting the audience do a lot of their imaginations. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Um, yeah, intentional or otherwise. Yeah. Like yeah, the um, I almost feel like there should be there should have been some extra like smoke effects or 
uh, as cheesy as that would be, at least it would kind of maybe sell it more than just this is, uh, you know, a 60-year-old man running around on a set <laughs> trying to pretend he's going fast but not actually going fast. <laughs> the problem is, though, I found the red seat more convincing than his normal outfit this series. <laughs> it was weird. He, yeah, his face. I think when he was stood next to Butler, I don't know whether it was just because Butler obviously has a similar mask but he has mm. Dominic Coleman's face rather than Robert Llewellyn's face. It just he seemed to look more like Crichton than yeah. he than he has looked for a while as well. Mm. Uh yeah, if that suit was just the normal colour he <laughs> 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 could have just kept that suit. Yeah. Nice nice um kind of what was it, a kind of a plasma lighting effect in the middle. I'm not entirely sure exactly what it is. It, yeah. Like one of those things from the nineties where you touch the edge and the little lightning things yeah. come towards yeah. your fingers. Oh, it's your little executive toy type thing. Yeah. And that's all he is really, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was an add on effect actually. I thought they'd added that on in post and he sort of put his hand in front of it and was like, Oh shit, that's actually practical, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, International Debris said in the comments uh, stuff that I've kind of already paraphrased but I've made a note of his comments so I'll read them out, it'd be nice uh, I was absolutely terrified of it all it could so so easily have fallen into Crichty TV territory but played as it was daft and over the top but with a completely believable explanation it worked uh, so yeah, aside from the age thing and figuring that out uh, how, how does everyone think that the way that the midlife crisis uh, sort of came about uh, how did they? How did people think that was handled? Um, I I thought it was fine. Um, yeah, they they avoided I think too awful and just handled it in a fairly light-hearted uh, way, which is probably the best you can do. Yeah. With a plot like that, and yeah, this is that was you know this this silly enough to um not really get worried about if you know what I mean yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a, there's a main thing the, the main pitfall that they could have fallen into was the, the, the maybe not even a crazy TV style thing but more you're lying um, yeah. you know sort of series 7 more, uh, side of things but like the closest the opening scene got to that was, was Crichton going on his little rant just repeating stupid 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 and that was beautifully undercut by just the cat coming in saying, are you talking about me? And yeah. it's a ridiculous joke on paper, but it was just, it, the impact of it was was really good in yes. the episode, I thought. Yeah, it was, uh, it was really well sold, I think. Yeah. And <laughs> I like lifting the cloche and nothing being there. It's just <laughs> stupid, but it works. <laughs> that's the thing. Yeah. Oh, I must have forgotten to make it. It's like, that's the most ridiculous <laughs> fucking reason. <laughs> and the, and got... I liked the cloche itself as well. <laughs> the fact that it was a red helmet with a, <laughs> some sort of fork sticking out of the top. Fork handle. I thought at first, it's like, oh, that... That is really red. Like, is he going to adapt this somehow into his suit? No, yeah. obviously knowing that the suit was coming later. Oh yeah. <laughs> like, I I got a bit confused by that actually. I was thinking, hang on, is that part of the suit? No, it isn't. I... How many red helmets does Crichton have? Yes, yeah, it's a bit strange. <laughs> does not... Crichton actually wear that a modified version of that cloche on his head? <laughs> we must find out. <laughs> or maybe it's his codpiece. 
I did wonder whether the thing on top of Grant's head was meant to be a spoiler. Like a car spoiler. Well, there's well, it was plenty shown of trailers. so much that... Yeah, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah the... Yeah, the... Um, the bully racer car thing. It was, yeah... It was kind of a cross between a spoiler on a car and just, like, a funky young person's hat that a middle-aged person would imagine <laughs> a young person man. would wear. <laughs> Do you know what? I didn't find... I mean, I didn't hate it. I just didn't find that stuff particularly funny. But it is worth noting they kept that to one scene. Yeah. They didn't do it throughout the whole episode. Yeah, they found something else to move yeah. on to fairly yeah. quickly. And something much better, in my opinion. Well, yeah. Uh, talking point number two, ah. sorry, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I hate you, Butler. <laughs> oh, sorry, I read that wrong. I hate you, Butler. <laughs> <laughs> but no. I, Go up. No, sorry, because, you, Butler. because there's a question mark on the talking point. Because I'm not saying that I hate Butler, I'm asking... I hate you, Butler. <laughs> Does everyone <laughs> like Butler? Do I hate you, Butler? <laughs> but I think we're all agreed that Butler is fucking brilliant. Yeah. 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 Absolutely spot on. Right, well, uh, talking about <laughs> 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 um, No, I, I really enjoyed Butler. Again, actually, this is the weird thing. I didn't necessarily find Butler that funny, but I found it very satisfying. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was well played, yeah. good concepts, yeah. Well, done well. And really good performance by Dominic Coleman. Really, again, really good. And again, that could have gone lines. so wrong. Yeah. yeah. Really, really good. He could have been too... It would have been very, very easy to make him too annoying. Yeah. Or too smart. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's like he's so on the nose. Like, the amount of times that he overtly rubs Crichton's nose in it. But he's Probably too... not deliberately, but that, that happens maybe four or five times. <laughs> but, like, that could have easily just sort of flipped over into just being irritating or, you know, not very well played, he's, but it was yeah. pitch perfect. He's classy without being smug. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, it, he's, when he robs quite as nose, it is because he's genuinely better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's right on the edge, though. He is like, yeah, it really feels it's not, like yeah, it's not pretentious right. because if it was pretentious, it would mean that he's sort of arrogant in the way that he, he can do he, he's saying he can do stuff when he actually can but he's actually able to do all this stuff but and he must know the answer to his questions especially like he's gone through and it's almost like the questions are escalating like you know do you paint do you write and then the last one he asked is do you dabble in medical science <laughs> dabble <laughs> and that it's probably is... going to be no the answer to that so I don't know if he does I think, know I think he's doing. just trying to genuinely find something that can be on common ground with and it just it seems okay. like he just can't seem to ever get there but it's frustrating for him as much as it is for Crichton I think and I like the fact that it's so early on that Crichton is undercut because when he first comes to the door, Crichton's desperately looking for things to be superior about. So just the very fact that he has a bridge rather than a command centre <laughs> is enough. But even while they're middle in the middle of that point, he spots the buffet. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to pause for a second because a damn fine comment has just come in from Lee Morn or Man or Man Man. <laughs> He says, uh, since Butler was the only survivor on the Nova on the Nova Three, essentially that makes him captain by default, right? So that means that Craig Charles and Robert Llewellyn were suddenly in another show with Captain Butler. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Abutin says, hopefully they'll meet a mechanoid called Prince, and then he'll be a prince among men. 
And yeah, yeah. <laughs> have fun with that. Well, there's definitely a joke to be made about Officer Rimmer and Prince among among men, surely. Pr- Prince. Prince. Prince uh, among men. I see what you Fingerprints. Uh, not, men not anymore. Men. <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't do it now. Anyway, got there. <laughs> yeah, he had to be. Uh, yeah, he had to be likable enough that Rimmer wanted him to come back to the ship and he had to be annoying enough so that Crichton would hate him. But it's kind of we as the audience I think we're we're more likely than not to be on Crichton's side in all this because we love Crichton and mm. it's Crichton feeling sidelined. But and yet we don't hate Butler yeah. for it because he's doing it in a in that particular way as we've described. Um Renegade Rob made a point on G and T, which I found interesting um, he said, every one of Butler's lines were gold because we've all met a butler, and I think this is the sharpest Doug's writing has been in some time because it's so true to life. And I'm not yeah. sure whether I agree with that, but does anyone want to take that point on? Is this I, Red Dwarf doing observational comedy well? Yeah, I, I, I think yeah. so. Sorry, Papsy. Um, no, well, I was going to say, I think, yeah. Well, <laughs> I think Doug has met a butler. I have definitely met a butler as well. Yeah. I think, yeah, I'd, I'd certainly, especially when I was younger and more prone to that this sort of thing, is, yeah, I'd, a lot of people I met when I started working for a, a, a global company, <laughs> and I, and I get, when I was sort of, sort of going through my several stages in life and suddenly my world gets that little bit bigger, and then I was like, oh, God, you're really smart, <laughs> and really cool and I, um, I'll i just sit over here see I, I don't particularly know anyone like Butler which makes me worried that I am the Butler the thing is I feel is that um, the idea of the midlife crisis and the the actual explicit uh, mention Rimmer has of um, your school friends and meeting your school friends yeah. the best one. this is all very well worn territory Mm. Um, and I think the thing that makes it uh, worth doing is the nuances of Butler's character in that he's so well done and so well written and so well performed. I think if it wasn't for Butler, Crichton zooming around in a red fucking Ferrari uniform <laughs> and everyone worrying about their school friends would be have me rolling my eyes because it's been done. Yeah. But Butler I haven't quite seen done in that way. And I haven't seen performed quite that well. And I think it's Butler that raises the whole episode into something that was actually worth doing. Well, I think the um, I think the point is, you know, comparing the two, uh, comparing Crichton and Butler and, and having Crichton be at this extreme in his midlife crisis in his red suit kind of contributes towards kind of defining the differences between the two. Like two mechanoids who were in exactly the same position at one point both on a crashed Nova ship, both having to deal with a dead crew. Butler clears out all the dead crew and serves himself. Crichton continues to try and serve the dead crew. And so, like, it's it's kind of nice to see the logical conclusions of those two choices made, like, thousands of years ago. It's interesting, because it's like Butler is basically Crichton's ace. I was just about to say that. Butler is ace Crichton. Yeah. They're, they're, yeah. They well, had the this same. This is Crichton's dimension jump. Yeah, they yeah. had the same yeah. start in life, and then they diverged at different points. And and Butler achieved everything that it's within Crichton's potential to achieve, 
And the reason Crichton didn't is because he got rescued by the crew and he had people to care for and he, he never wanted to do anything more than care for people. And so there's a whole extra thread that, which you could take on from this episode about family and versus work and all that shit, which I probably shouldn't get into. Well, yeah. wait a minute. Are, are, are you bringing that to the It was like there? Crichton chose family over a career. Yeah. And it was like that literally that thing that literally, I mean, Lister did it um, in um, Thanks to Memory. He chose, like, you know, he chose a career, he chose family over a career, that kind of thing. And then it's, it's, it's interesting how those two splits seem to be a common thread for most characters. Yeah, I think it's a very fair point. It's, it's not very explicitly stated in the episode as well, which I'm not entirely sure. Like, it becomes a problem maybe towards the end that the sort of the more the the point of the episode isn't kind of communicated that well, but it's it's a, yet another episode that kind of rewards further contemplation. I think. Yes, uh, I think uh, slightly later on uh, is the best place for some of that because that's another future talking point. Is uh, yeah, is the, the conclusion. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, should we talk about uh, what I termed golf and safety, uh, which is the scene after they've picked up Butler, uh, where all of a sudden there's golfs there. Yeah, just just thrown away as well. Like, I thought I, I really love how just it, there's so many examples of, of this in the series now where. So much work has gone into the the costume for that gelf as well, which is like stunning, the best gelf makeup that the show's ever had. And it's a couple of minutes, and it isn't even that necessary, but it's just, it's it kind of feels, it enriches the whole thing. Like, some people have complained that it maybe sticks out a little bit, but um, I liked having that thrown in there. I like that, I like the gelfs. We're a hell of a long way from the banks. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Great design. Yeah. And I think yeah, it does kind of stick out a bit, and it's one of the things where when I look back on it and think, well, why, why all of a sudden there's gulfs there? But I think when you're watching it, you get kind of swept up in. I like the fact that it's lots of events happening one after the other. Like the plot is continually being moved forward by these events that happen. And everything that happens in that scene happens for a reason later on. Because, like, it, it starts off with Butler messing about with the whatever it is that he upgraded, and that becomes relevant to the plot later on. And yeah. um, meeting the Gelfs is another way to establish how Butler is better than Crichton, in that he can communicate with them and get it right. And, and not just in terms of diffusing the situation and making it safe again, but also with the pronunciation. Oh, yes. <laughs> Which <laughs> I, I swear it's my favourite scene of the series so far, I and, I, and I could happily have another minute on it. I was slightly concerned while watching that that John's laughing <laughs> caused him to go back into hospital. It, it's the no, it's the it's the first time this series that I've been had uncontrollable after both times I've seen it so far, um, and um, that's the only time that really happened last series was um, the. Uh, some bowling scene in the beginning, yeah. which I also nearly died during. <laughs> uh, but I didn't have pneumonia then, so it wasn't quite as big a deal. <laughs> For me, it's it does it rewards repeated viewing that scene because they've obviously chucked a load of different takes together, but they've picked out 
the every every performance of the mayor is different. <laughs> it's unique every time. Like some cat gets really exasperated and says, "It's as if he's going Come, for fuck's sake, it's mayor." <laughs> it's like, it's, the way he's gesturing with his arms. It's like, I, Come on. I think what I like about that scene as well is I. It's the kind of scene that you can imagine on paper isn't funny. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times when I'm watching Red Dwarf these days, I look at it and go, ah, yes, I can see how that could be considered amusing. <laughs> but I don't find it funny. Whereas this, I can totally, can't really see how they got to the point where, how they got to that point yeah. of writing and performing it. But they yeah. did, and I'm it's really bold. pleased they did. It's, it's quite Crazy. brave in a way. To... It's all in the performance and the... I think maybe especially the editing, like that might not have even been particularly funny on the night. I'm not sure, but what what, with it? it all cut together and it lasting the, the perfect amount of time. I seem to remember finding it amusing. It's just one of those things with the length. That's it's just it, I didn't find it amusing to start with, <laughs> but then the longer the, it went on, <laughs> and Crane's yeah. face is excellent. Obviously. Yeah, Crane's yeah. face is brilliant. He, I tell you what, he reminds me of, and this is unusual that I like it because of this reason because this is something that traumatised me as a kid but it reminds me of um, his face reminds me of Stop It or is it Tidy Up? Uh, <laughs> tidy Up The big one The big one, yeah the big one, no, Like almost exactly and may- maybe this is now me coming to terms with, with that childhood trauma <laughs> It was reminds me of Beaker Beaker as well Yeah, maybe Beaker. more Beaker and I do love how um, Butler leans back in to classify yes. someone more time. Which, oh. It's basically, yeah, the, that scene, because of the mayor aspect, I think, it is. it does feel jarring at first, like, oh, suddenly there's gelps. But actually, when you look back at it, it's probably the funniest scene in the episode. Yeah, I think so. And it's so, so worth doing. Yeah. And thinking about it, there's, there's a bit of conflict in the episode for me because the use of the, the seeming... <coughs> throwaway use of stasis in order for them to get to the Nova 3 yeah. rankled with me quite a lot and I mentioned that in the review however it does work in this instance that suddenly we've got Gelfs yes but what they've done is they have entered into a completely different part of space, they've entered into Butler's world basically yeah. and in Butler's world he's got this Gelf um, fleet nearby, he's got this space station nearby it's quite populated, so they, you know, all these things existing suddenly doesn't yeah. feel as jarring. I, mean, I, think, I, think we should be I think we should be grateful that they at least went in stasis as opposed to just suddenly coming across <laughs> the Nova yeah. 3. Yeah, it's like, yeah, th- this is a little space neighbourhood yeah. uh, where you've got the Nova 3 and, and just next door you've got the Gulf World. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's Butler's little community. I mean, you know, he likes to spend his time on his own, but, you know, he has his. He's <laughs> Gelf neighbours and, and the say, universe on his doorstep. I meant to say, with regards to Butler, nominative determinism much. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little <laughs> Where do they think to call him Butler? <laughs> uh, well, then it's the same with Croton, isn't it? In a way, because his name is the that, That's not his job title, though. <laughs> yes. But, Butler, well, Butler. I suppose, yeah. Butler's well, an earlier model, though. Maybe you know, a little bit more primitive. Maybe. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, if it, yeah. Earlier models were just given the names of their jobs. They weren't given individual personalities. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. The the whole thing about what mechanoids are supposed to be at this point is so <laughs> messy. But yeah, we'll get onto that. I think if we if I can even be bothered. <laughs> well, is, it, is this the three million year thing? Because I because I've got a sort of a slight headcanon thing about this. In it, that just because mechanoids. Uh, like replaced every three thousand or every however however long it is doesn't mean that they won't last for three million years if they felt like it. The fact that obviously the 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 company will want to just release the newest thing as and when it's made, regardless of it's almost like planned obsolescence. But the point is, the mechanoids probably could last a million years, but they don't want you to know that. They just go, well, here's the newest model. That one's gonna have to get you know we have to replace it just to make money. Because they said, um, that's, that's but would they, would it be would that reflect with like the, me- the mechanoid's internal psyche of no, like their midlife surely would be, well, I say if they had this, <laughs> the same life cycle as a phone, after one year, they'd be like, well, I know that other things, other models, you know, die after two years, therefore my midlife crisis is now. No, their midlife crisis would have been three million years, but no mechanoid would ever get to that point. So Brian's I mean, right. <laughs> obviously the first one to ever get a midlife crisis. Okay. <laughs> so they theoretically last six million years, and because of yeah. that, he knows that once he hits three million, that's it. But then, yeah, three million is obviously like, oh, God, I've, I've hit my. Yeah, he knows, like, he's worked out that he knows it'll last three million years, but he's obviously like, well, I'm obviously going to get replaced after a thousand because that's how it works, right? That's, He'll that's, never get to three million. That's some pretty major over engineering. Because then <laughs> well, you'd, have, you'd have to, you'd have to say that. All mechanoids accept that they will be essentially killed when they're the human equivalent of about two. When they're a child. <laughs> when they're a toddler, really. Well, yeah, but I, 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 always assume, I, I always assumed that mechanoids were kind of replaced after two or three years. That was always what I thought. It's Yeah, it, it, with Hudson being sent yeah. to replace him. And yeah, if it was a built-in obsolescence thing then they and they were planned to replace them, then you wouldn't have a phone that could theoretically last... 10 years because no. as we all know any smartphone goes to shit after a, about but, a year and a half two years maximum but also because they want you to buy another one at that point yeah i mean you wouldn't have a thousand year development time anyway yeah oh, excuse me. i feel we've strayed somewhat so i will kill Sorry. you Um, if he is the first one to like to last that long and knows he's going to last six million years how does cap know that generally they last (laughs) six million years like why is that some information that cap knows off the top of his head because he is very consistently written (laughs) (laughs) right um, we have reached roughly the midway mark of these talking points, so let's all have a quick collective existential crisis. Uh, while we're doing that, remember that you can get in touch with us by leaving a comment on Spreaker or tweeting us at Ganymede Titan. But now, here's a few things that you may not know about the making of this episode. Ganymede and Titan presents Dwarf Facts. <laughs> crisis is actually spelt wrong. It is very difficult to get a cloche three million years into space. Cloche. A deleted scene revealed that the crew were always in stasis whenever they're not on screen, sometimes for millennia at a time. 
This means that they actually passed Earth at some point during the nine year gap, and are now heading aimlessly towards the other side of the universe. Original Crichton actor David Ross was initially hired to play Butler. However, the veteran actor was unhappy with the script, claiming that the continuity errors surrounding Crichton's age and the appearance of Series 3000 mechanoids meant that the series was no longer legit. He quit the production, but luckily the Newcastle-based actor and musician Jimmy Nail was available to step in at the last minute. Crichton's new suit was originally supposed to be red. The scene in which all the characters repeatedly bleat meh was designed to poke fun at Robert Llewellyn's Welsh roots. Following the first rehearsal, Robert entered into an almighty sulk about this, forcing Doug to completely rewrite the episode to account for his demeanour. The universe was played by Morgan Freeman, who finally makes his Red Dwarf debut after originally auditioning for the part of Rimmer in 1987. Due to contractual reasons, however, he is credited here under a pseudonym. The climactic scene was originally going to end with Crichton playing All You Need Is Love by the Beatles through his new speaker system. Sadly, permission to use the track was personally refused by Sir Paul McCartney, who has held a grudge against Red Dwarf ever since a perceived slight against his haircut in Future Echoes. Everything that you don't like about this episode is the fault of evil script editor Andrew Allard, who secretly sneaks into the studio late at night and replaces all copies of the script with his own special Andrew Allard versions. Danny John Jules is an arsonist. Closh. Hashtag... Dwarf facts. Sorry. Sorry, I'm just laughing at my own joke. <laughs> <laughs> Not for the first time. Uh, right. Uh, <laughs> that is the end of the dwarf facts, and remember, cloche. Uh, we've got a few uh, comments that have come in uh, while we've been on air. Uh, Jonathan John's Mad Young says, Hurrah, John Hoare is back. He's not dead. I owe you 20. Uh, he's loving the guest cast more than the crew. Yep, this is definitely John Hoare back. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? I'm sorry. You are nothing if not uh, predictable. Yeah. And a cunt. <laughs> it's always been true. <laughs> uh, Stephen Abootman asks, uh, Is Sparehead 3 having a midlife crisis too, I wonder? Oh, I may be 30,000 years old, so yeah. Oh god, another thing that contradicts his age. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I'd forgotten about that one. Uh, and uh, just to refer to something, that we, this is quite a convoluted way that this comment has come about, but we've received a tweet from Joey Newsom whose husband is Alex Newsom, and she says, according to Alex, <laughs> there is a deleted scene in which it says the thing on Crichton's head is a roll cage. So it is a uh, car-related thing. Spoilers. (laughs) Spoilers for the DVD. Okay, awesome. Okay, so... Move on to the... uh, Oh, oh, sorry, John's management makes a good point. Uh, Sparehead 3 is northern, so we would have a five-minute midlife crisis like Lister. (laughs) Oh, delete line. Not deleted scene. Well, Alex, tell your wife to... Uh, <laughs> sort your wife out. Sort me. your wife out. Oh, no, she did. She then sent a tweet saying, sorry, I meant deleted line. So he's already sorted his wife out. <laughs> what, what have I got onto here? This is, this is bad. bad way to <laughs> uh, So, uh, talking points. Continued. Uh, talking point number four is life. Uh, which is kind of about Crichton getting really quite deep at times about the universe and how it's all pointless yeah. and we're all fucked. 
It seemed to me that this episode plays quite well in the latter half of 2016. And I know that it was written and made way before uh, Donald Trump's rise, for example, or Brexit. But it kind of feels like, I don't know, it might be just me, but for the last few months I've thought, God, the world is a really fucking shit place, what's the point of anything? So, maybe... Love you too, darling. Yeah. Uh, apart, from, apart from love. Yeah. Ah, love. No, but yeah, um, I think... I don't know, I think things were pretty shit. I mean, when did he, when did he write this? Uh, 2015. Some, well, he yeah, wrote it. it wrote it at some point between series yeah, ten and Donald Christmas. Trump was, you know, was around. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, um, we still had a Tory government. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I, th- I think it's. I'm a, not it's saying it's in any way political or anything. I'm just saying that it quite it resonates quite well now. But that could be just me and my fellow. No, I think you're right. Yeah. Like Gary Lineker. (laughs) (laughs) Villa have another ex-Birmingham City manager. (laughs) It's all going to shit. Uh, (laughs) No known cure says uh, there's a bit of a clash betwixt Crichton's nihilism and uh, being jealous of Butler. Have I said that word right? Oh yes, Butler. No, it's pronounced (laughs) Closh. Closh. Between Crichton's (laughs) Closh. There's a bit of a closh. Anyway, uh, yeah, but I guess it's part of the process, uh, which is kind of... I think, yeah, let's deal with this now. The process that Crichton goes through um, to, by the end of the episode, being happy again because he's figured out what's important in life. I think watching it back for the second time, you can see all the little stems there that lead to it. I do just think it's a bit of a shame that there's... I don't know, I, I can't tell, and it's hard to tell, because if they'd have over-explained, you know, if they'd have explained exactly why Crichton feels that way by the end of the episode, then we'd probably be complaining that it, the dialogue's too on the nose and we could have figured that out ourselves. But you you see, there's a scene early on where um, Lister really proudly reels off the list of character traits that he's given Crichton, mm. and Crichton says, oh yes, I've, I've come to appreciate my uh, good upbringing and then there's the bit later on where the ship's in peril because it's about to crash because of what Butler did, and then Crichton suddenly snaps out of his jealousy and realises, oh shit, I've got to protect the crew. I think he came to the same conclusion that we all did in the comments and in, in the discussion afterwards of um, Butler's achieved this because he hasn't got any people yeah. to look after, and Crichton realises, oh, actually, instead of doing all this stuff and, and painting things, you know, instead of pursuing art... Um, which, in a, in a universe that's dying, is ultimately pointless. I have these relationships instead, and that's more precious to me. I think you're right, and I think... I, and it's all there, and I don't think it needs to be 100% explained, but I'm unsatisfied by the generic speech about love. Mm. I think it's yeah. too generic. I don't think he needs to grab Rimmer by the hand and go, oh, I've got my friends and that's all that matters and all that shit. I don't think it needed to be, you know, drawn out specific, but the love stuff was too generic and too wishy-washy. And I think there's a kind of halfway house somewhere where you could have done a bit more, but not kind of just, yeah, explain the entire thing. Yeah, I didn't feel like the the journey that he took to his realisation... Um, when he's talking to the universe, which I realise we're probably skipping ahead a little bit again. Yeah, that's fine. I don't think that the 
like we can infer the journey, but I don't think it was kind of really there on screen mm. enough. It would have been good. I think if you saw just before the break when Rimmer was going on about getting Butler on and um, and sort of having him as a superior mech, if you could sort of saw Crichton in the background maybe observing the conversation and then obviously seeing Lister um, fighting yeah. against it, then that might have been something, but there didn't seem yeah. to be any an extra An extra it. reason, yeah. Yeah. Connective tissue. It just it feels like they're nearly there. That's what bugs me. Yeah. They're nearly there. And this is something I've kind of felt throughout a lot of the series and also through some of ten as well. It feels like you're nearly you're nearly <laughs> you, so you're close. just yeah, just so close. Just one stretch more and you would have got there. And I've actually felt that certainly through Samsara I felt that. Um Given taken a slightly different way. Officer Rimmer, certainly. I felt like they were nearly there at the end and then they snatched defeat <laughs> from the jaws of victory. Um, and I felt it here as well. It just it's, it's all there. And then just they, they don't quite do the last 100 metres. <laughs> um, Chris M said on GNT on, the, on this topic, I like thought-provoking episodes where a character goes through a journey and if it's played for laughs too, fair enough. And it worked on this score. Because yeah, I think it yeah, it was funny. Crichton's I don't think it me. failed at the funnies at any point. No, that's what that's what elevates this episode, I think. But then it's you see, I I think it did. But then I I worry when we start to separate funny from character, or funny from plot, or funny from anything else the show is doing, because that's what is funny. Funny is character and is plot and is everything. And if you're saying, or if we're saying, well, no, actually, I don't think it manages that bit, then to me, that makes it less funny. Yeah. Because funny isn't something you just silo off. Funny is everything. I think in this episode, most of, yeah, it's, it, it has been a strength of most of series 10 and sort of almost all of series 11 with the exception of some of the Cat and Lister stuff in Samsara, that all the jokes do still come from the characters. Mm. And I think in the and the, the let's go back to the mayor bit. Uh, <laughs> that's funny regardless because it's a bunch of people making a funny noise. <laughs> but it's the character moments that elevate that. Yes, absolutely. And, it's, it's and I'm not saying it's ne- I'm not saying it's never successful, but I'm saying it could be funnier. Yeah. If they and if they always got to. The end and the destination. I think the destination would be more satisfying, but also funnier. It, it would it would service everything. It would service the comedy and everything else at the same time. I'm not saying there's nothing funny about this show. Believe it or not, <laughs> despite <Yeah>. my. <laughs> so yeah, but we kind of it went for to conclude the the Crichton plot. It had the punchline on the end uh, about Butler having set the whole thing up. Uh, as an extra bit of funny to close the episode on. Um, but yeah, the, the sticking point for me is the big speech about love, which, yeah, yeah, I, it, it does feel like an extra line here or there would have to tie in the love to specifically the characters that they're talking about. And it also, it kind of just reminds me that at one point Red Dwarf would have taken a piss out of that and mm. done a, 
Don't give me that Star, Star Trek, Trek crap. crap. Yeah. And now you're doing it straight. <laughs> and I'm not saying that Red Dwarf can't do things like that, but it, it just felt a bit kind of weirdly on the nose and is not quite what was needed. Yeah. Well, I've, in past examples of Red Dwarf, and recent ones as well, of, of Red Dwarf doing something touching, I we have very, very different opinions <laughs> on Back to Earth. But <laughs> the bits... Don't start that one. The bits in Back to Earth, for me, uh, which, are, which are supposed to be touching, are. And yeah. I like uh, Lister being sad, basically. I think works really well, partly because of Craig Charles improving as an actor as his years have gone by and also because I am in love with that character and that's why things like Dear Dave when the character does something that I don't love jars with me so much I really care about these four characters at this point and when things are done right I can feel for them I can cry with them as well as laughing with them but this bit just wasn't quite enough to make me to if you're going to go for some to making a serious point and doing it in a straight laced way it has to be a better point than that i i will make one point that i promise also links into crisis as well as that's worth and i won't go on um i agree that i don't think it necessarily works in crisis though i think it nearly does which is the frustrating thing it's nearly there um but i will say that the episode um did you know, it starts off, sometimes I find it funny, sometimes I didn't find it funny, but at least they were trying to be funny, and then they do that at the end. My pro- big problem with Back to Earth was they started with the big sad Lister scene, mm. and my attitude was, no, make me laugh first, please. Yes. Uh, so uh, I think they got it the right way around here. And that's, again, what I mean when I just say, that I feel like they're nearly there. Um, yeah, I think there's there's always been a little bit of a problem sort of post-Series 6 where there's been emotional moments that... Well, I mean, not so much 7 and 8, but it's all a bit of a blur to me, 7 and 8. But, you know, back to Earth, since then, there's been emotional moments which I felt weren't quite earned or warranted. Mm. Um, Or, you know, if they used emotion, they didn't undercut it in the way that they used to. Um, So, I think there are problems with with the way that that it's done in Red Dwarf now. Yeah. Um, having said that, there was, I think there was quite a good balance in Crisis. And they did undercut it with the final, yes. final joke. So, uh, with, yeah. with Butler. And it had an ending. This yeah. episode, yeah. it had an ending. Right. <laughs> well, we're not, yeah, we're not we quite there ending. yet. Yeah. Quite before the ending, um, there was also the punchline as well to that scene of um, get rid of that suit. It's horrible. Uh, delivered <laughs> delivered by talking point number five, the universe. So, <laughs> this is uh, also what I meant by an ingredient that is wrong. <laughs> I, um, I, I still don't know what to make of the fact that now the universe is a Morgan sentient Freeman. living being with the voice of a, <laughs> a, of a semi-competent Morgan Freeman. And, and, and also on, on the end of an old phone. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the phone I liked. But then they put the phone down and kept talking. So what was the point of picking the phone yeah. up? Just well, I wish I, I wish there was a little bit of a, of a hint that it might not actually be the universe. Yes. Well, that's what like, people have been saying a lot that, you know, I think people are trying to justify it because it's a weird thing for Red Dwarf to suddenly say, 
yes, the universe is a sentient living being that you can talk to. And so people are uh, looking at what's in the episode to come up with reasons for that to not be the case. But I think, and that's obviously fine, that is essentially what this entire website is based on, (laughs) (laughs) picking out things that aren't there and, and expanding upon them. But I think just from watching the episode, there is not much suggestion that it's not as it's presented. Yeah. I think it's pretty. The episode is being pretty clear cut in its depiction uh, that this is accurate, an accurate thing. However, Pendo uh, disagrees on GNT. Pendo of Coffee Lounge Cock fame. Uh, he says, "I think it depends on what your interpretation of this scene is, but as nothing is particularly explained properly, we're free, we're free <laughs> to make up our own conclusion as to what the universe is." And obviously, people are, are talking about is this a uh, is this the computer simulating what the universe would do? Uh, is it a, a simulation in some way? Mm. But but again, I think the show is telling us no. This is the universe. This yeah, I'm all for like uh, the the sort of looking deeper into the episode after afterwards, drawing your own conclusions. Like th- things like in Give and Take, there was a lot of kind of a lot of things you had to work for to kind of draw some conclusions and I like that I think saying anything other than this is the literal universe is 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 a stretch at yeah. this point like, there's, there's there's nothing there's no there's no hint of a, a thread that you can pull at that other than the universe which is you know a shame I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out why it doesn't bug me <laughs> I, well, I, that's I, the thing. It really doesn't, but I don't know why, and I think I'd usually <laughs> lose my shit over this. Well, my next question was, does this fundamentally break Red Dwarf? Because I think <laughs> yeah. it's kind of it's it's a big enough deal that it mm. it could like it's so out there, and it's a totally Futurama thing to do. Which yeah. a lot of people have been saying online over the last few weeks that this series is increasingly reminding them of yeah. Futurama. But for Red Dwarf. Yeah, Futurama isn't concerned about keeping a an air of loneliness yeah. in its in its storytelling, so it can do stuff like that. Same with Hitchhikers; it's not really a, a story about loneliness. It's more one about possibility and, and busyness, almost. But Red Dwarf is like, especially well, no, at all times, even when it was, you know, even when it's doing wacky space rom, it's it's still a very focused thing and, and to kind of change the literally change the nature of the universe that they've been stuck alone in yeah. is a weird thing to do it doesn't have any negative effect on past episodes no because no. you can help you know um, ignore that but it does <sighs> I, I think I think the thing is, is that Red Dwarf usually and I know you can make some exceptions maybe especially about East Rimmer but Red Dwarf usually concentrates on the small and this is not small no this is very big um even taking say one of the biggest events in the show's history which is um the accident on board red dwarf and it going through million years into the future that's very big for our characters it means nothing to jmc i bet it happens quite a lot yeah. <laughs> because they're idiots yeah. So to them, that's just one accident, and we see the repercussions of that accident. But in terms of the universe itself, that's nothing. And most things that happen in Red Dwarf are not universe-defining. Mm. Um, the closest I can think of is Ace Rimmer, um, especially in Stoke Near Clipper, where we see what he's been doing. 
Um, and even then, that's not of the scale yeah. <laughs> that we see here. It's, yeah. I, I can't escape the, the thing that, because what they what is on that space station is an interface to the universe, but the universe is still there all the time. So they've effect, effectively met a character now that is always there forever because they're in the universe. Um, <laughs> you, there are also alternate universes. There are? Oh, jeez. Yeah. So you've got parallel universes, you have um, well, every time they make Morgan a decision Freeman. split, so <laughs> yeah. created every time they make a decision, so technically that's just a universe, not the universe. Mor- Schizophrenic universe. Morgana Free Woman. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, 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 that's why I don't really have a problem with this, is because it is just a universe, it's a possibility of them finding a universe is just one possibility of, the, of, of a universe. So it, it it doesn't it doesn't bother me it, the, the fact that they've speak, they've spoken to a universe. I think it bothers me now. People have talked about it, <laughs> 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 and it wasn't really bugging me. Before. <laughs> okay, well, I think another yeah, issue. Go on, Capsi. I was I was just gonna I have one more thought with this is that I think another problem is is that in a, especially in an episode where <clears throat> it's it's very character focused on. Not only Crichton, but actually Lister, Lister's character comes through quite a lot in this episode as well. And you know, we're so focused on the characters, and then this huge thing that ends the episode has nothing to do with the characters and doesn't even have a meaningful interaction with the characters because, as we discussed about the the love yeah. kind of <clears throat> revelation, doesn't really have any real connection. It just feels like dead weight and an unnecessary thing, and which makes it even more egregious that it's so Though you do have, to me. You oh. do have the midlife crisis friends that is reintroduced <laughs> there where you give universe midlife crisis which maybe has its own <laughs> issues and problems there. Actually I like it's another thing all the ingredients are wrong. I like elements of this scene um, even though I'm not on board with the concept of it and the line about that's why I'm not as hot as I used to be and that I'm constantly <laughs> expanding is a very and, funny line. And it's also very Futurama. That yeah. really is the most <laughs> Futurama it gets. And Rimmer interacting with the universe as well and asking for proof and, and Lister's little riff on that is funny as well. But, yeah. yeah. My, one of my issues with it is that they took... We've always said we're alone in a godless universe. Um, it was established early on that God doesn't exist in the Red Dwarf universe. Um, obviously, it that is up for debate because there are many people that believe that God doesn't exist in our reality, and there's many people that do. And this episode goes to the point of having Crichton saying to the universe, we don't know whether there's a God. We don't know. But the universe is portrayed as God. And I don't yeah. think there's any two ways about that yeah. because he says I created one planet with life on it. He's the creator of what's within the universe. He is God. He's being portrayed as God. And I I also find that bit weird in terms of well wait a minute that is confirmation of that then mm. because we've never had confirmation that 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 at least in the TV series that humans are the only life forms. We just have never come across anyone else. That's true. Yeah. But now we have confirmation of that, and that feels a slightly different thing. Mm. Well, no, because it's, it's always been established that 
in, even in the books and in the, the thing, they've always established that they are they are the only thing. It, like all the probes and all of the missions that sent off to find all in terms of life, not even an intelligent plan, not even a stupid plan, all that kind of stuff. I think it's so more. It, pro- I think it's more proved in the books. I don't think yeah. it's as proved, and I think the books and TV series is quite different. I mean, the universe yeah. is sentient, but that doesn't mean that it's it's. That doesn't say it's God, that just means it's a universe that's created things, which is just the way that the universe works. The way I took it, in saying that the universe is basically God, is that the universe seems to be fulfilling the functional space that that God in mythology fills, that the creator and the creator side of the myth. Because he's not um, omnipotent. Or which is the one? Omniscient. He's not omniscient because he doesn't know that he's going to die in 14 million years. Billion. There's also a strange thing where Red Dwarf has always taken the universe itself very seriously and suddenly you've done um, a a midlife crisis gag with the universe and all of a sudden (laughs) that seems to slightly reduce the seriousness Mm. of how the world itself is portrayed. Yeah. But again, it didn't really bug me till this conversation. <laughs> it's still, it's still really. I, I think. I think. If you actually, I don't know. If the more I think about it, the more it seems weird. But I kind of took it as fine. Watching. And again, yeah. To reiterate, I'm probably the one with the biggest problem with this as a concept. But watching it, I still enjoy the scene. Mm. It's just yeah. when you think about it a bit too much, I have problems with it. But as a scene in the episode, it was funny and it flowed. And it did the first time I watched it though. It just. It was so bizarre what I was seeing. It was, it was just a bit mind blowing of what. So this is happening in the Red Dwarf thing now, and and in Red Dwarf the universe you can speak to. Ah, what's happening? And then it cuts to Starbuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was about to say. And, and Lister says, uh, "What a very strange day." And that yeah. is my favourite line <laughs> of the episode. That's quite because the understatement. It's just like he's the Greek chorus. It's, it's, yeah, but it is it is interesting and it is a, a very specific deliberate acknowledgement yeah. that things have gone batshit insane here which, and now we're dragging things back to normality. Which leads us very neatly by complete fluke to yes. uh, point number six, everything. Uh, which is how does this episode <coughs> therefore fit in to the Red Dwarf oeuvre. Because, like we were saying, it's it's established a thing that, depending on your interpretation, either clashes with what we previously expected or doesn't. Um, but also, there's so many... And it seems a bit tedious now that everyone's been talking about it online for a week. But there is a lot of little continuity errors in this. Or not even errors, but just areas for debate about series 3000 mechanoids um, are supposed to look like this and supposed to look like that. And I kind of regret bringing it up <laughs> now because it's taken on such a life of its own, that discussion. And I think it's only... I think it's easy to forget that we on GNT are such a tiny proportion of the people that watch Red Dwarf because you just look at the Red Dwarf hashtag on Twitter and there is a whole breadth of people there who are just enjoying it for what it is and don't give a shit that Crichton said something in 1993 that contradicts this. I mean, yeah, I, I think that stuff is fun to talk about, but, yeah. but ultimately 
entirely irrelevant. Don't use it as a way of bashing the episode, yeah. I think is what I'm saying. Because it's they're a, it's far a, bigger. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, um, people, uh, Pete Martin, I think, has been a big proponent of this on the comments threads in the last couple of days of saying, look, it's it's fine. It doesn't spoil the episode yeah. <laughs> at all. Like, you can criticise when an episode contradicts itself or when the characters are behaving in a way that's not true to the characters. But little details like what a Series 3... The reason that Doug said Series 3000 Mechanoid in this is because Crichton is a Series 4000 Mechanoid and it needs to be one less than Crichton and so it's a Series 3000 Mechanoid. And it needs to look like Crichton. Butler needs to look like Crichton because that's what a Mechanoid looks like. Anything else, any extra bits of dialogue to explain, oh, but of course, uh, in with the Unreality Bubble, we said yeah. that that's bollocks and that detracts from the episode yeah. and it's just going to alienate everyone who isn't on g and If yeah. they had that in there, everyone would be going, what the hell are they doing that for? What was all that in there for? Why yeah. are they handing it to us on a plate? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, um, I'm just glad that Doug has remembered what, uh, or remembered how to write good gelf uh, dialect. Yes. <laughs> and, and not just not not just boil it all down to kakakakakaks. Like, you know, there's a little bit of that, but, you know, when it comes to servicing the past, I think he's been so much better at that this year. Like, he acknowledges, he acknowledges past episodes that they're in all the right places, and like the what happened to Rimmer at the end of Series 8 stuff, he discards the bits that aren't that important, I think, in all the right places mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. I mean, if, if- if there's any uh, piece of continuity that we should be talking about that would be irritating, not in this episode, but Red Dwarf as a whole, it would be what is Rimmer's attitude towards religion and what is his parents' attitude towards religion, which is character stuff yeah. that's important. Yeah. What mechanoids are called is not... Numbers are not important. Yeah, this is not important. Crichton was Series 3 in The Last Day. Yeah. And he was Series 3000 on the back of the smeg up to the HS. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you want to be pedantic. Yeah, BBC Which Worldwide got in there before you, with, uh, Doug. <laughs> so, what, was the, what were the other big, slightly troubling things? There's, there's Crichton's age, which we've kind of talked about, of, um, it being complete bollocks <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> contradicting everything. And yeah. It becomes more of a thing when it's like the whole episode's hung around that premise. Like, it becomes a little bit more important, I think. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, yeah, it doesn't particularly matter because it's part of a funny scene that's followed by a funny scene. Yeah. If you know what I mean. There was um, the minor issue of um, the fact that Lister is faced with the universe and doesn't ask about Kachansky. Oh, uh, yeah. It's just a minor thing. Red Dwarf Dwarf 11 seems to have completely forgotten that Kachansky exists. And that is fine. I'm I'm on board with that. I don't give a shit if we never see Kachansky again, which is nothing against Chloe Annette, because she is both a good actress actress Actress. and very nice. Yeah, but I have no desire to see Kachansky in Red Dwarf mm. ever again, unless Doug has an amazing idea to make it somehow good for the first time ever. See, <laughs> but the thing is, with, with Kachansky, the point thing where Lister just jumps into stasis without any disregard of how long that would take. Oh now. shit! Yeah. Hold on. <laughs> He's just gone. No, let's go to stasis. Like two hundred years have passed, and gone. Oh fuck! That means that we've gone way past the lifespan of a human. Therefore, she's probably dead. Hold on. I mean, <laughs> I was in the middle of making a point. 
and you steamed in with your not actually being able to hear me properly, and so it's completely fine that you did that. Um, what was I saying? <laughs> I don't want to see Kachansky again. Yeah. But it is now a bit weird that Kachansky was mentioned in the first four episodes in a row of series 10 and with the implicit aim and sometimes yeah. explicit, I think, of we need to find Kachansky, for Lister to never mention her again <laughs> is now a bit weird. I think I'm just happy to let fanfic fill in those gaps. Yeah. <laughs> and that's fine. Just do it. I'll probably, I won't, I won't read, read it. <laughs> As for um, Danny's point about stasis, yes. it could have just been that it was like three months and they just couldn't be asked. They said weeks. I think um, in the dialogue it says that the, in this particular instance it was weeks. It's uh, okay. the... Um, it's the... But yeah, if... Do they? I think so. I'm not sure. I, I, think, <laughs> I think the thing with the Kachansky thing is... If you're going to go down that route, the bigger, weirder thing is, why aren't they trying to go in stasis and go to Earth? And if we're not going to start picking on that, yeah. there's no point picking on Kachansky. But then, I think we've had, like, I mean, it's something we've discussed previously, but obviously you won't hear that. But, <laughs> you're um, in hospital. You're in hospital. Oh, God, you're yeah, no. But anyway, um, that Lister has had opportunities to kind of go back like mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. previous even episodes this series yeah. he's had opportunities to go back and he's chosen not to and I don't think that's really what he wants anymore it's weird that the series has never quite been explicit like, no, Red Dwarf, Red Dwarf is really good at not does. being explicit at a lot of things I think, well it, I think it's a the line at the end of the beginning is a very clear indication it's explicit in uh, the end of Backwards the novel um, when they jump uh, in Ace's ship and they and Lister sees the hull of Red Dwarf and realises that ah, Red Dwarf is home all along. I kind of feel we needed then, that moment. <laughs> but in, it's implicit. It's definitely you are supposed to take away from the beginning that they've come to the same conclusion in the TV universe, I think, uh, mm. when Rimmer says the slime's coming home in reference to Red Dwarf mm. as opposed to Earth. Um, obviously that is a a fan thing, you'd have to be a fan to get that, but yeah. Um, I think Kachansky might have gone the same way as Holly in that Holly just wasn't there for <laughs> sorry. sorry, am I talking over something again? No. <laughs> there was an extra joke which you'll hear when you listen back to the podcast. <laughs> okay. Um uh, like Holly just wasn't there in, in Back to Earth and no, maybe there, no, there, there was a one throwaway line about Holly being flooded, and I yes. think at some point between 10 and 11, Kachansky has been That's confirmed right. to be dead, maybe, or God knows what, like found a wormhole, gone to an alternate dimension, something that just completely rules her out and that maybe she'll be mentioned. But I think Doug's opportunity to bring her back was in those original two episodes that he had to scrap, because he pretty much mentioned that Kachansky was going to feature in them to some yes, degree. In West and now he's just like, nah, I can't be bothered. Like, you know, oh, he's got different ideas, he's got different goals now. Yeah, I think if you were going to do it, you'd kind of do it this series, wouldn't you? But the, what, and he's not interested. What would have happened? What would have happened if at the end of series 10 Kachansky came back? Would she still be around? or would She, she be... probably wouldn't have been in this series. Yeah, no, that's the thing. Like, what... Now that she's gone, you can't bring her back because then she'd have to either stay or be killed. I, I always yeah. imagined... It would be the Jennifer dead. problem yeah. back, to, back to the future. I always imagined yeah. she'd be written out somehow at the end of the two episodes. Yeah. 
But uh, it's ha- it's probably quite a relief that that didn't happen in series ten then, because there's only, <laughs> there's only one way that characters go in series ten, especially female characters. <laughs> anyway, um, let's wrap this bit up by uh, taking no, <coughs> no froze suggestion from G and T, which was could we unreality bubble series seven and eight? Best explanation for them. I, if we're going to accept that the reality bubble is the explanation for the Series 3000 thing, let's just assume that nothing that we don't like... Do you, do you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm always really uncomfortable with that, and it's not that I particularly like 7 and 8, but I, I don't like the idea of trampling on the people who like those series. I think it would be Oh, I do. I love that idea. No, but I've heard a lot of people say it seriously. Yeah. A lot of people say it. I mean, yeah, all right, fair enough, that was a joke, but I've heard loads of people seriously say... Unreality Bubble Series 7 and 8, and it just seems very mean-spirited to me. And unnecessary, because Doug's attitude to From Back to Earth onwards is clearly, ah, whatever. I just think whatever, was... whatever you don't like about what we did, it doesn't matter, because here's the current setup. That's why there's no explanation for the cliffhanger of 8, and there never will be and should never be, because it is irrelevant. It's just, this is what Red Dwarf is now, this is the status quo, this is our starting point. Go. Yeah. Pick, yeah. pick the bits you like. The bits you don't like, that's fine. It tends to piss me off. Like, a lot more you get a lot of um, back-to-work hate. Like, oh, let's just forget that existed. Well, if we do that, then we don't have Series 10, and we don't have Series 11, and we don't have Series 12. Yeah. Yeah, so and also, off. the back-to-work stuff feels so revisionist as well. It's like everyone suddenly... You know, pretending they were all there with John Hoare, hate, uh, you know, although I'll tell you one interesting... John's, dis- John's dislike is authentic. There's a lot, like, where the fuck were all these people hating it at the time? Because it really I, yeah. wasn't badly received at all it at was. the time. But, well, to, to be fair, I, I had a lot of people at the time say to me they hated it. And, you know, but, interestingly, I've heard a lot of people... I didn't hear many people in Series 10 saying to me, oh, Red Dwarf's back, da 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 A lot of yeah. people, friends who are, you know, aren't part of the Red Dwarf fan community, yeah, a lot of people know. on Red Dwarf 11 have said to me, oh, no, Red Dwarf's really good this series. So anecdotally, even forget, I, I, I mean, I genuinely did hear that about Back to Earth, but anecdotally, this feels to me to be better received than, yeah, yeah. than Red Dwarf 10 has been and, and feels like a genuine kind of return to form. And then it's me who's kind of sitting there saying, well, actually, <laughs> personally speaking. But, but, but a lot of people, not this more than one of them. thing is, John, in terms of how you get on with Red Dwarf post-93 yeah. or post-2009, whichever yeah. way you want to slice it, um, you haven't got on with it anyway, but in comparison to the rest of them, how is Series 11 going for you? Is it worse than Series 10 in your eyes, or better, or the same? I think the problem is is that I went into 10 kind of already thinking, Bleh. so actually <laughs> the fact that I liked some of it was, was quite good. I went into 11 with slightly higher hopes. Oh. Um, well, that's your first mistake. But... <laughs> Well, optimism. But, but there is, there is, a, I mean, under promise, there's, over there's, deliver. yeah, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on there. For instance, there may well be, I mean, you know, this possibly could be taken the wrong way, but if I can drag the conversation to George and Mildred <laughs> for thirty seconds, okay, five series of George and Mildred, I'm enjoying it all. I'm just started series five. I'm really, really enjoying it. I don't need a series six. 
I don't need a Series 7. I don't need a Series 8. I don't need any more George and Mildred in my life. I've had my <laughs> fill of George and Mildred. And I love it. But I've had my fill. And I think coming back to all the stuff about really enjoying um, the um, guest characters, which I, I seem to be a common thread, is part of the problem. I've had my fill of the interaction of these four characters. Have I just seen enough of that? That could be part of it. Because I've seen Lister and Crichton and Katz and Rimmer interacting over and over and over again. And I've also seen um, seen the episode far, far too many times, mm. which needs to be taken into account yeah. in that the people who are watching this series haven't watched the end 50 times. So there is possibly a thing here where it's like, well, my perception of a lot of this is skewed because I've overwatched a fucking series. Yeah. Um, which means that when Butler comes on and is doing things that Red Dwarf has never done before and all that, I I quite enjoy that, even though I don't necessarily find it that funny. But when I'm seeing a Lister Rimmer scene, even if there's some good jokes in it, I'm looking at it and going, well, I could watch this, or I could go and watch something else, because I've fucking seen this. And I think that's part of the problem. Just And that's a personal thing. That's not series. That's not the show. That is a personal relationship I have with, with it. I think... Everyone has that with everything at some point. I think it's a, a genuine dilemma for Doug, actually, with the writing, is that he's got to keep um, hardcore or fans happy because there's, yeah, there's a reasonable number of us, uh, but also he needs to welcome new people in. Yeah. And you and part of the core <clears throat> of the show is Lister and Rimmer interacting, but if you've seen all you really want to see of Lister and Rimmer, then... Yeah. It, it won't sort of, it won't necessarily excite you. Um, what I, I don't, I don't really have that opinion, but I do enjoy it when Lister and Rimmer and well, actually, when characters are, are behaving as they always have done in the in the episodes of Red Dwarf, that I find really funny. Um, so I always enjoy it when. There's Lister and Rimmer going back to their core characters. I I really enjoy it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't think the new stuff, the new ideas coming into Red Dwarf are a bad thing at all. I think they're good. Um, but I do think that the way they've been executed has varied really widely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think agree. that, everyone agrees. <laughs> I would agree. With Just to, could you clarify, John? Yes. Uh, are you saying? That um, because you don't want to watch Lister and Rimmer scenes anymore, that they should stop making Red Dwarf. No. Okay, Lev, that's what that a one cleared up. <laughs> no, absolutely not. In fact, I'm very specifically saying that's a personal reaction to the episode. Yes. And I kind of, I like the fact that other people are getting a lot out of it. And I'm getting something out of it. I'm not getting nothing. Uh, well, to move on uh, with another accidental uh, things linking quite well which I've just ruined by stumbling on that bit <laughs> uh, the final talking point is it shit or is it good uh, Phil Reed says um, I really enjoyed this one uh, 11 is taking concepts that worried me and turning them into solid episodes whereas 10 took concepts that interested me and bungled them pretty heavily <laughs> so yeah I, I think yeah it is a is featured thus far of, of series 11 uh, despite what we were saying earlier where you often feel that there's like they're a couple of steps behind, or it's things are almost absolutely perfect, but there's a few niggles. But I think they are getting closer this time round. 
I, don't, I, yes. I certainly think you can't fault the series for its ambition, and you also can't fault the series for it's doing a lot of different kinds of episodes. Yeah. Mm. And each week you tune in and you don't quite know what kind of story you're going to get. Mm. Yeah. Um, in a good way, not in a yeah. in a, a not in a in a bad way. I think eleven. So I mean, we should probably save some of this for next week. But eleven so far seems to me to be. Um, much more where you look at it and think, and you don't really think about the fact that oh, this is a new episode of Red Dwarf. It just feels like Red Dwarf a lot more than some of the previous ones have. And I think especially the scenes in today tonight's episode with I think specifically the Crichton and Butler stuff initially, where Butler's showing him around the gallery and and Crichton is is looking so good and acting so much like Crichton and being really funny with it, and Rimmer just walks past and. In insults Crichton every couple of minutes just to keep things interesting. My, it, my sort of it seems effortless. That my my favourite um, or my second favourite actually because my favourite is the meh scene. My <laughs> second favourite moment in the whole series is exactly like that, and it's in Officer Rimmer, and it's when um, one of the Rimmers just walks in by himself, looks over to the room at the door and stretches out yes. his hands. <laughs> so you say, and that felt effortless. And that felt effortless in the context of a really fucking complicated special effects sequence, which is really, really hard to do. Um, we are really running over. So <laughs> uh, we'll just quickly uh, go around uh, and say in one word each, is it shit or is it good? Fine. Good. Fine. Capsi. Good. Danny. Great. Smashing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, as the shit. And so, as the heat death of the universe approaches, it's time to move on. Uh, coming up next, we'll be getting a good firm grasp on some small points, oh. i.e., any little bits and bobs relating to crisis that we've not yet covered. Uh, get those to us now by commenting on Spreaker or tweeting at Ganymede Titan, and we'll be right back after these messages. Miles from Earth, deep in the heart of the solar system, and you fancy a curry? Then why not drop in at the Titan Taj Mahal Indian restaurant? Enjoy the finest tandoori cuisine at one-fifth gravity. Just a short space walk from this cinema. <laughs> Hudson 10 is the new state-of-the-art in Android technology. Ten times faster than any droid on the market. <laughs> Ten times smarter than its nearest rival. <laughs> and ten times stronger. <laughs> Hudson 10, there's never been anything tougher. The ultimate machine. Attack of the giant savage, completely invisible aliens. You are 
Kraft has just entered the catchment area for the All Droid mail order shopping station. Welcome to All Droid, where shopping's made easy. That is totally astonishing. Talk me through this, Bob. You simply put your sugar into your coffee, like so. Place it in the housing unit, grab your Sturmaster, and the Sturmaster stirs your coffee for you. Golly, even I could do that. The average person who lives to their 90s and has six cups of coffee a day spends over two weeks stirring drinks. Oh, my. Think what you could do in that time. Two weeks stirring or two weeks skiing. I know what I'd rather do. <laughs> Me too. The Sturmaster. A lovely addition to any modern kitchen. Buy yours now. And at seven, Premier League Croquet. Eastbourne Ladies versus Gloucestershire Girls. It's a grudge match. Gosh. <laughs> and welcome back. Uh, you join us as we prepare to rustle through some small points. Who'd like me to handle theirs first? Me. I have a small point. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> May I please? Um, yeah. Uh, model shop. Oh, rather CG model shop. Model ship. Very nice. Model very, ship. very, very beautiful ship and something we haven't really seen before. It was a good ship. I liked the ship. It was. It did remind me a little bit of Back to Earth with the, um, the observation dome kind of, the observation stroke crystal dome. But it also looked like um, the, the, just the way the ship was kind of dynamic was really nice. And I just really liked the look of it. The, the, the ships in this series have been fucking gorgeous, to be fair. Uh International debris adds to that. Uh, can we have some love for the stasis travel sequence, especially the three suns bit? Yeah. That was, <laughs> that, that was like the start of Remastered and Right, wasn't it? That, <laughs> the... that, that, very, that, very, that pre-credit sequence, like introducing a remaster project. Oh, yeah. It was Which like was, that. yeah, the, the... It was Lister in, in Remastered. It was Lister Oh, yes, stasis, it was, yes. It was, uh, yes, sorry. It was it used for, yeah. Yeah, it was that done visually done properly. They do like a... Really, really, really long shot on Red Dwarf, though, don't they? This year, yeah. There's a lot, lots and lots of like either quite dark shots or or Red Dwarf. Oh, it's almost like a pinprick in the in, yeah, you know, right. in the scene. It's interesting decision. I don't have anything more to really to say on it than that. But. There's a lot of close ups and a lot of far shots, and maybe not quite as many. Uh, a small point from Alan Wilkinson. Uh, does the Samsung Galaxy Note 7 go to Silicon Heaven? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Topical. It burns in raging hell. <laughs> it does burn. Have you, have you seen the um, GTA 5 mod that turns the sticky bombs into a Note 7? Yes. <laughs> uh, I believe you've got a small point for me to take a look at. I have. Um, and maybe someone can help relieve me of my small point. I don't understand how the how Starbuck goes from going to crash to landing. Yes, Crichton presses a button uh, that that turns something or other off. Um, I think it's just that if they carried on in whatever mode they were in that um, Butler set up, then they would. Uh, burn the engine out and be fucked and so they have to switch to some sort of safe mode to get to the yeah. nearest thing but yeah and it's the, kind of weird jeopardy... that it's nine hours away is not that quite a... yeah if it was yeah uh, it, it's just over there It's it'll take us three minutes to get there we can just about hold on for three yeah. minutes would have made a lot more sense than 
Okay, let's just leisurely. <laughs> Le- nine hours. Nine hours. Yeah. Nine hours. <laughs> Slow I do crash. it was nine hours. I'll put a film on. <laughs> the, the original title of the episode <laughs> was Slow <laughs> Crash. <laughs> But yeah, no, I, I just found that a bit weird and a it, bit kind it, uh, it seems, yeah, it's odd, actually. It seems to sort of suggest that they collided there in nine hours, which yeah. is, I don't think you can glide in it's space, can you? isn't it? <laughs> Shut up and glide. <laughs> I know, it's, it's, it's almost like you, you'd, you, instead of doing the whole crash or glide thing, you could have done some other way of um, butler sending them in that direction. Yeah. That didn't involve, because there's no jeopardy there. They didn't need any. I mean, you know, there's no, there's no Japanese. He didn't need any Japanese necessarily at that point. But that's the thing. If they'd later joined the dots, and it was, uh, it it could serve as one of the things that triggers Crichton into getting better because he snaps out of his funk about Butler and realizes yeah, Lister's in danger and he needs to save Lister. That's true. And I, th- I feel like if they'd have joined the dots a bit later on, and it was uh, seeing you in danger, sir, made me realize. Which again, over explaining, yeah. etc. But if you okay, if you interpret <laughs> it as that was one of the reasons that helped Crichton get better, then there is still a purpose for, for that. Yeah, I think it's just a nine-hour crash that I've got a problem with. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's odd. <laughs> uh, I have a small point, which is uh, why does uh, the full Lister breakfast? Uh, why is it not covered in curry sauce? <laughs> <laughs> Why did he not spit out the canapes in disgust because they weren't made of curry? This <laughs> I'm, I'm complaining of right. a lack of curry jokes in Red Bull. <laughs> <laughs> but it's another thing, maybe it's just he's matured over the years, maybe it's yeah. character development, but there, there was definitely at one point in Red Dwarf an established fact that Lister could only eat curry. Uh, well, apart from one time last June where he had a pizza and only then when it was covered in curry sauce. Well, the, the the way around there is that Crichton got him to have a more traditional um, full English breakfast by um, covering his toast in mustard. That's like the trade-off. Okay. He's still, he's still got that <laughs> kick with the mustard. So um, Mustard kick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm just Double mustard with mustard. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Delicious. Oh, I found it. Uh, sorry, I was just scrolling. Uh, I was desperately scrabbling around to get my hands on John's mud, John's mad small point, uh, which was I found Butler to be quite data-like in his accent. Uh, was he deliberately trying to be data? Discuss. <laughs> well, having watched a lot of Star Trek recently, I don't know. I don't think data in Star Trek would have existed if it wasn't for Crichton. <laughs> that man who said that was James O'Brien, who is now the only left-wing person on LBC. <laughs> He's the man that always has the videos being shared of a man despairing when people talk about Brexit. He's now the man. <laughs> <It's weird. laughs> but anyway, yeah, the actual point. Because, uh, yeah, uh, Dominic Coleman is not an American man. No. He is an English man with an English voice. It's um, a are choice. We, are we make. sure we're not just mistaking uh, someone who clearly knows a thing or two uh, and mixing our two androids together? Yeah. Because Data's a smart arse. Data's a smart arse, so is Butler. They speak uh, very well, as you might expect. Um, thing is, Butler's, yeah. Butler's too confident. Data isn't, in terms of, yeah. in terms of human interaction, and yeah. Data isn't, so I don't really feel it. Data's, to be data's no. very neutral in the way that he interacts, and they, they did that you know, deliberately. 
Whereas Butler isn't. He's very confident. He's very yeah. warm, in fact. And he has yet the um, the real um, air of a teacher, which Data doesn't, because Data is interested in learning I, I, from other people. I kind of like the fact there's a bit of um, debate as to exactly how much Butler's trying to wind up Crichton. I yeah. think it's deliberately ambiguous. And I think you can look at it either way. Before we go on, who wants to do it? Shall I do it? Don't give me that Star Trek crap, it's too early in the morning. I think on the subject of Butler's accent, I took him to be... um, um, uh, Has anyone seen the the South Park episode where uh, it's the Prius episode from years and years and years ago Mm. and everyone decides to move to San Francisco and everyone um, gets addicted to smelling their own farts? Oh, the smug. Yeah. The yeah. smug episode. Yeah. I took him to be like that sort of type of San Franciscan. I'll like to take on that. <laughs> like, but he's also really, as well because really, really pleased with themselves, very accomplished, but um on the brink of being irritating. And uh, and yeah, it could be as well just that Crichton has a vaguely American y voice and as does you know, that's the mechanoid voice. It's the American y <laughs> yeah. voice. Yeah. 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 Canadian American. They are the same. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, Any more small points? I have a small point. Oh, yes. Um, Lister's pyjamas. Why the fuck do Lister's pyjamas have caricatures of Lister and Rimmer and Pat on them? What he did was he went to DeviantArt (laughs) (laughs) and he he searched Red Dwarf and that's what he found. And yeah, I I can't remember who it was, I do apologise, but someone said on the uh, comments on G&T earlier, I think it might have been John's Mad. John's Mad always says good things. It's usually him. He said um, that uh, that because the picture of Rimmer has Smeghead written next to it, then that makes the Smeg count for all the episodes now. <laughs> Smeg, how many does that count as? Oh, by the way, oh, Capsie, yeah. update that. It's two. We, we counted two, earlier Yeah, today. I've just remembered that needs to be fixed. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? I'm going to fix it now. Oh, fucking hell. Well, there you go. Live. Oh, you could wait five minutes. <laughs> I, I want to be dynamic. <laughs> okay. Well, head over to GNT now and refresh that review, and, and you can watch Capsi update it live. Uh, Pendo says that he wants uh, replicas of Lister's pajamas in the Red Dwarf store. <laughs> yeah, I can. This is the thing: is that I I could understand it being merch. Yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't appear to be like, oh, they put it on Lister and now it's going to be in the in the merchandise store. It's just a thing. In, in universe, who, yeah. who drew those things? This is yeah. This is what I mean. I, I, could I, I think it might be Lister if you went to art college for ninety-seven but, minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he. I think that doesn't mean he doesn't know how to draw. That just means yeah. that he went didn't go to my college and didn't stick to it. He could still be a, quite a good artist. He just didn't stick to it. Why he didn't do want, it professionally. I think why would dis- you want to wear them? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we've decided in the past. I don't know whether it's explicit in the show or whether it's something we've decided that he painted his jacket and with the Wilma Flintstone and mm. everything. So he's now moved on and he's made himself some little pajamas. I mean, we can't. We're finding it hard to escape the. Conclusion that most of Tumblr has come to if he's got, <laughs> he's got little cute pictures of Rimmer on his pajamas. <laughs> Did we ever figure out if they cleared Wilma Flintstone? 
Oh, it's probably best not to ask that right. question. Okay, fine. <laughs> Lest we want the DVDs to rapidly disappear from the shelves. Well, also remember there's an illegal version of um, Polymorph out there on the uh, Series 3 DVD. Oh, yeah. Not classified. <laughs> let's, let's, <laughs> let's move yeah. on. Moving swiftly on. Yeah. Um, according to Cy Bromley, uh, Caps has now updated that. Congrats, oh, yeah. Caps. Yay. Well done. So, uh, now you've got that out of the way, um, let's talk about Can of Worms, which is the final episode of Red Dwarf 11, which should be released tomorrow. And none of us were at the recording. Nope. None of us. But Just, I thought we all had tickets to every yeah, episode. It's weird, isn't it? <laughs> that, that definitely happens, and yet none of us went to it. Since, since we're on um, repeating jokes that we made uh, before the show started... <laughs> I technically have seen the episode because I've read the Radio Times review. Ah. <laughs> yes, apparently I have deliberately not looked at it, uh, but yeah, I mean it's probably a bit late now that the episode's going to be out in less than 12 hours, but d- avoid the Radio Times if you haven't already. I mean, that's just yeah. good advice. <laughs> I think for future reference. <laughs> so do we actually know anything about it? I don't want to say because I think I've guessed, yeah. I think I've guessed right. something about it. Which yeah, seems, me too. Which seems like the kind of thing that would be an easily spoiled thing in a Radio Times review. And so right. I don't want to say what my guess is in case it's true. Okay. I will say that the Radio Times review, it, it really goes to a special, special effort to spoil numerous things. <laughs> almost, almost leaving absolutely nothing for the episode itself to reveal. It's really, it's an astonishing piece of work. I, I can sense a takedown of this happening on GNT at some point, but we'll have to wait until everyone's seen the episode yeah. before we can. But yeah, I yeah. think so. Um, UK TV player would be, be glad that some of the heat's off them for a week. Yeah. Besides some of GNT's minute heat, <laughs> we're aiming in their direction. Did, did they feel like a brush of fire? Warm fire. Hot breath. Because <laughs> we're standing slightly too close and breathing through our mouths. But anyway, kind of worms. Um, we have actually seen quite a lot of it because there's so many things still in the title sequence and in the trailers and in some of the other promotional material that we've not yet seen in the series. Mm. So obviously we've got the the main bulk of the original trailer, um, the life, uh, these life poems by any chance us. We haven't oh, had that yeah, in the series yet. Yeah. <laughs> so that's got to be from Can of Worms. Unless... Something amazing happens, and it turns out that that was specially shot for, <laughs> for the trailer, which would oh, be quite a revelation. Yeah, or it's from 12, I was going to say, because it's not the first time they've put in a, a, a shot from a previous series in the next one. So, <laughs> That's true. You know. Or it could be a deleted scene. Yeah, well, yeah. We've, got to assume, we've got to assume that it's in... Because in the trailer, it was cut to look like it was um, Asclepius that they were tracking down, but that yeah, was yeah, deliberately yeah. misleading, or, you know... Yeah, it was a sequence was with them, it, yes. so... Um, so yeah, it, that's got to be from this episode. There's also shots in the title sequence. Uh, the cat uh, wearing a pink tracksuit, getting shot by a, yeah. by Lister and going into green gunky stuff. Uh, cat in the same pink tracksuit, firing a couple of guns. Mm. Basically, there's guns in this episode quite yeah. a lot. I there's, think. Sorry. There's also you know, just while well, I remember it because I will forget um, that robot thing that thing that is uh, originally from the Rings of Akatan, the worst uh, ever episode of Doctor Who, apart from probably the Twin Dilemma. Um, that, that, <laughs> that Doctor yeah. Who uh, robot that's been recycled 
we haven't seen in the series yet. There's a photo in the SFX uh, Red Dwarf special of Rimmer, Crichton and Lister. <coughs> Uh, I think it's those three. It's definitely just three of them. I think it's Cap that's missing. The three of them in a lift wearing white parkers and carrying guns. And that's <laughs> we haven't seen guns. that yet. Lots of guns. Lister with the pineapple. Lister with the pineapple yeah. in the title sequence. We haven't seen that yet. There's a shot uh, in... The, God, this is more than I just thought. <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. I'm talking quite a lot. There's a shot in the... Um, the second trailer, the, uh, the second half of the series trailer that's been on Dave, um, <coughs> where Crichton and Lister are running around in the background and then Cat emerges from a bucket of water or some sort of bath. That must be from that episode. <laughs> There's also... Um, oh, I had another one then, but I forgot. Oh, um, the more so Medibay operation type stuff. Which I assumed at first must have all been kind of worms, but there's a thing of Crichton firing a laser and it goes all around and everyone has to duck. Uh, we haven't yeah. seen that yet. I think there's a weird thing where we thought most of the title sequence had been seen about halfway through, but it hasn't. I think maybe yeah. there was there was very little from Officer Rimmer or Crisis, maybe just like yeah. one or two shots from each, and so we had a load of Twentica and Samsara stuff in it, and so we thought, oh, that's it, that's done. And um, and, and the sleepiest stuff from Give and Take as well. Yeah. But then it's kind of... And then we assumed that what's left would be spread across the last three, but actually it seems to be mostly from the last one. It's, um, it's, it's kind of encouraging, really, isn't it, that that episode must obviously have been quite, you know, front and centre in their minds, maybe because it was the last episode they edited, I don't know, but... Like it kind of speaks for its quality, the fact that it's been put last and it's featured so heavily. Well, yeah, and all the things, the many, many things that I waffled on about, um, they're all quite different from each other. There seems to be a lot of different stuff packed in. A lot of it seems themed around guns in some way. Well, <laughs> there's a lot yeah. of different settings and different scenarios. In it, it would be interesting to know whether, um, and I don't think it's always true, and I think it's actually overstated, but the fifth slot is supposed to be where you put the turkey. Mm. Or the one that was less good. In fact, I don't. I Crisis is far from my least favourite episode of the series. Ditto. Um, and I. That's a kind of interesting as well. Uh, exactly. I'd love to know how they decided. I wonder whether we'll see more in the documentary. Mm. I'm not expecting them to say, and we put Christ fix it shit. No. <laughs> but, but yeah, you it'd be interesting to hear hear a bit more about because because we didn't get that at all in ten because it was as shot. As shot, yeah. Uh, and you'd hope that there's a reason why they've. Like you'd hope that the last episode of the series, whichever they pick to be the last episode of the series, is thematically uh, clima- climactic in some way, yeah, and and impressive, and feels like a big finale, because that's what Twentica felt like when we went and watched um, it be recorded as episode six. Mm-hmm. I think it's just the mindset that we went into that recording thinking this is the last episode of the series, and then came out of it thinking, yeah, that really felt like a good last episode of the yeah. series. See, I so without without that, I think. If you don't have it in your mindset that it's the last, then you don't necessarily go and watch Twenty and think well, that should have been the finale. Well, yeah. I don't. Well, no, I mean, I'm not sure. I look at Twenty and go that should have been the finale, but I, um, I really had severe um, problems with Twenty when I watched it, and part of that was because I was literally coming down with pneumonia as I was watching <laughs> yes. it, which didn't help. But, <laughs> but I, I did, I, I did have problems with it in terms of I, because it wasn't set on Red Dwarf. 
it felt strange to me. It felt like a weird placing. It felt it. like a yeah, a weird one to open on. Yeah. But hey, we will get to John Hoare's <laughs> thoughts on Twentica uh, when we do our semi-retrospective oh, God, in, in some future <coughs> time. <laughs> Sometime in the future. But unless anyone has anything massively pertinent to say about uh, Can of Worms... No. Uh, let's wrap the fuck up. Uh, because tomorrow, for the final time, we face the ritual of some fans frantically refreshing UK TV play first thing in the morning while others battle their way through a spoiler minefield until they get the chance to watch. Hopefully, it's the final time ever, but definitely the final time this series. So, when you have watched it, head over to www.ganymede.tv to join the discussion. Uh, You'll then have some talking points to pour over on Friday evening, before our in-depth written review over the following days. Our final live Dwarfcast of 2016 starts at 10pm on Thursday the 27th of October, and you can listen again to tonight's show on Spreaker right now, or wait for it to turn off on GNT and all the usual podcast feeds sometime on Friday. That's it for tonight. Thank you to our guest Joe Sharples, and to everyone who listened live, especially the lovely people who chatted along. Uh, we're all off to enjoy some 2140 vintage champagne, so until next week, Ed bye everybody. Ed, Ed bye. bye. Thank you for listening to GNT Dwarfcast, and we hope sometime in the future you'll decide to listen to our Dwarfcast again. Have a safe onward journey. Goodbye. Closh. Closh. That's Closh. Closh.